Hey, if you had to pick one word to best describe you as a person, what word would you choose? All right, anything goes. One word to describe you as a person, what word would you choose? Turn to the person next to you right now and share with them that word. Do it real quick. One word to describe you as a person, what word would you choose? All right, we've got some laughter going on. We've got some looks of like, what are you talking about? That's impossible. Uh, you know, when you think about it, words have the power uh, to really do a lot for your identity. And, and what word you choose or what words you would choose or others would choose for you uh, say a, a lot about you and say a lot about your identity. And some of those words we welcome. Uh, we like some of those words that best describe us, but there are words indeed that we run from. Uh, and so what words best describe you? Uh, maybe you work in a workplace and any time uh, this one particular guy's name comes up in the office, you hear this word a lot. Yeah, that's the funny guy. Yeah, the funny guy in the office. Or if you're in high school or you're in college, we know this word or this label means a lot. Senior. We got any seniors in the room right now? One, one there in the back. All right, one senior with us here this morning. Or, or with the economy the way it is right now, we know this is a great word, employed. All right, this means a lot for some people. Or uh, this is an exciting time for many people in their life when they're able to say married, you know, came across a wedding yesterday. Uh, for many young parents, like this word, expecting. Uh, if cancer is a part of your past, we get real excited when we see this word, survivor. Uh, if you play for a sports team, we like the word champion. Uh, These are good words, all right? These are words that we welcome, words that we invite, but then there are other words, uh, words that we know spell pain. There are words that we have to live with that often bring regret or maybe a sense of hopelessness. There are words that follow us around year after year, words that we'd love to shed, words that we'd love to forget forever. I mean, spend some time listening to people around you, the people that you love, the people that you live with. Uh, You're going to hear some of these painful words, not a champion, but runner-up, all right? That's a painful word. Or uh, some of you only had to hear this word once in your life, and now you continue to hear it forever. Failure. Uh, I I think we have a lot of men living like this today, unfulfilled. Uh, This one brings a lot of pain, and this one does too. I mean, what word is it for you? Uh, What word best describes you as a person? What word do you choose uh, to describe yourself to someone else? I mean, if we asked your friends, they'd probably have a word for you and hopefully a good word, depending on how good of friends they were. But we choose words for ourselves, and I know that we're often not as kind. And so these words, they become labels for us. They become like labels that we carry around. Words like lonely, words like single or widowed, angry, frustrated, cheated, bitter. I mean, when you think about it, one word has the power to say so many different things. Well, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul reveals for us five words that really have the power to change everything. They have the power to change everything for you and me in our life. And in Romans chapter 8, uh, it's just one chapter. I mean, it's one chapter is a part of this longer letter written by the Apostle Paul to new Christians living in the ancient world at this time. And and in addition uh, to his original audience, which was 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote these words to people like you and me to help us better understand who we are and to help us better understand the words that should describe us. So we're going to look at five words together. Five words over these next five weeks, one each week. And I really believe that if you can embrace these words and take them as your own, that they really do have the power to change your life. 
And not just for a short period of time, not just a a temporary period. But these words have the power to change your life forever. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And we've got some back at the Info Hub. As you leave today, stop by there. We'll give you one as a gift. Uh, No strings attached except that you read it and bring it back with you when you come next week uh, to read again. Uh, maybe you're a smartphone kind of a person. If you want to follow along with the uh, you version, uh, you can uh, as we look at the Bible together. But go to Romans chapter 8 uh, to help us better understand uh, this chapter, though it's important that we take a look at Paul's entire letter uh, in some context. And it's difficult to pick up a letter like this and just jump into it halfway through if you don't really understand what he has been saying up to this point. And so we need to understand a little bit more what comes before it. And so while you're finding your place in Romans chapter 8, I want to do a little bit of a rewind and review for you so that we can get the greater point of this particular chapter. Uh, If you're taking notes and you're following along, uh, the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Romans. Uh, And you can write that down in your notes. Uh, Some people uh, say this isn't true, but most people say Paul indeed is the author. Uh, Before surrendering his life to Jesus Christ, Paul is what we like to call a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee means that he was an expert in the law. He was expert in the rules and the regulations that have been established for us in Scripture, so much like a religious lawyer of sorts. Now, keep in mind, uh, as you read through this book of Romans, uh, if you do it for yourself, and I'd encourage you to do just that, the first seven chapters, in many ways, reads like a legal document. Uh, It's almost like Paul is presenting a case with a legal document here, and at times, uh, it isn't real easy to understand. And there are some really complicated parts and some really complicated sections that you'll come upon. And what's interesting, though, is as you read through Romans and as Paul presents his case, you discover, I discover, that it's not as if he is presenting the case that we are a part of the grand jury or something. Uh, We're not a part of the jury here. But the truth is that you and I are sitting in the defendant's chair. This case is not being presented to us. It's really a case being brought against us. And Paul is like a prosecuting attorney here as he makes this case that all have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned. We're all guilty, everyone, you and I. And as the scriptures state, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Now that sentence, the sentence that you and I deserve for our crimes, as Paul states, is death. And the judge isn't going to let us out based on community service. Uh, He's not going to let us off the hook based on good behavior. We have this penalty against us. And what we deserve for our sins is death. And so I guess you could say that the word that best describes the condition that you and I are in before Jesus Christ is this one. And if you can't read it for yourself, it's the word condemned. This is the word that best describes who you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. It's the word condemned. Now, by the time this case hits Romans chapter 8, Paul is ready to make some final arguments. But again, before we do that, there are a few other words that I think we need to get our minds around that Paul speaks of in these first chapter of Romans that I want to make sure we get. Because if we better understand these words, we're going to better appreciate the message that is found for us and discovered in Romans chapter 8. So again, if you're following notes or following along with the notes, I'm going to give you some important words here that you can fill in along the way. Uh, The first word is this. The first word is the word law. It's the word law. And if you're writing notes, if you're writing these down, the law defines sin for us. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. 
The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So what does this verse tell us? That you and I aren't going to be made right with God by following all the rules. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes a case against what I guess we could call a rules-based sort of religion. He goes as far as actually saying that we, when you think about it, we're really imprisoned by this law. I mean, it traps us. It, it confines us. It won't let us move ahead. But don't think for a moment that that means that the law is bad. The law isn't bad. It's just that we can't seem to keep up with the law. There is no way that any one person can live up to the exceptional standards of the law. And so what's the point of it? Well, it's like what Romans 3.20 says for us. It shows us how sinful we really are. The law defines sin for us. I mean, we wouldn't know what sin is without God's law. And and so it shows me when I'm wrong. It It reminds me that I'm a sinner. I mean, I don't know if I'm speeding unless there is a speed limit sign posted to tell me what the actual speed limit really is. And so what's the problem with this law? Again, it shows us that we sin, but the problem with it is that it can't keep us from sinning. It doesn't have the power to keep us from sinning. I mean, the law is a lot like your maps app on your phone. I mean, you can plug in the coordinates and it can tell you where to turn and how to get there or how to get back on track if you've gone in the wrong direction. But your maps app won't drive the car for you, at least yet. I mean, they don't have a sophisticated enough one yet. I'm sure it'll come one day. And, and, and so what results from the law? The, the law leaves us feeling guilty. The law leaves us feeling condemned. And as a Pharisee, Paul put all of his hope in the law. I mean, he was doing everything he could to keep all of these do's and these don'ts right, trying to abide by all the rules. And so he put his faith in a list of do's and don'ts. And there's a, there's, there's a word for this type of living. And you can write this down. It's the word religion. It's the word religion. We'll define it this way. Religion is a system of rules and regulations. That's what religion is. Uh, One definition for religion, one person said, religion is man's attempt to please God by adhering to the rules and to all of the regulations. But you and I can't do that. I mean, we can't earn our way back to God. You can't please God that way. And so that's why at Genesis Church, we try and remind people all the time that, you know, we're doing our best to say that, you know, Christianity isn't about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. I mean, knowing Jesus Christ, it's about having a relationship with him. It's not about earning God's favor with your life and your actions. Christianity is based on this relationship. It's a relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, you can find your way back to God, again, not based on what you do or what you accomplish, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. And and Paul understands this problem with religion. It took him a while, but he understands where he used to be And he understands where he is now and that he he understands how he used to live and how Jesus Christ has changed all that. He, He understands, he knows that you and I are made right with God again, not by following the rules. It's about a relationship with God. You know, Paul lost his religion when he found Jesus Christ. And that's why it's important to know that religion leads to condemnation, but Jesus leads us to salvation. Religion leads to condemnation, but Jesus leads to salvation. I mean, can you see how easy it is to forget that? I mean, I forget that all of the time. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I mean, that's why it's so important to come back to a truth like this over and over again. Because if you don't, our default is to go back to all the time Christianity as rules and regulations. And so I've got to follow the rules. And and if I break the rules, then God is mad at me. And so I've got to do my best to follow the rules once again to earn my favor with God. And so we become like these Pharisees. And and so we, we, we take some of the laws and we make up our own list of do's and don'ts. 
and we say, well, that's Christianity. I don't know if I can live up to it, but I guess that's what Christianity is. Again, don't we do this? I mean, aren't we all guilty of this? You know, why do we do it? I think some of us just really feel the need for a method of measurement. You know, we need to know how we're doing. And so we want to measure ourselves. And every Sunday becomes like a a performance evaluation for us. How did I do this past week? How did I do this past weekend? Am I good enough for God? I mean, I remember growing up as a kid and in high school. I mean, for me, it was as long as I'm keeping these rules, not watching rated R movies, you know, not cussing, not acting this way. If If I'm doing all of these things, well, then I guess I'm okay with God. Another reason why we default back towards uh, this uh, system of rules and regulations is that I think it leads to a false sense of superiority. I mean, when you are getting it right, because you'll look at your list that you've created and say, well, I'm doing all of these things and you're not. And so I guess I'm okay. I guess I've got some reason to be proud about where I am right now. I mean, how, how does this work? How do we see this, you know, even outside of our faith? I mean, have you ever been bumped from coach to first class before? If you've ever done that, it'll ruin flying for you forever. I mean, you know, you'll never want to go back. There's a, there's a, hey, I kind of deserve this. Or, or maybe you're all about renting the compact and they upgrade you to the full size. Again, you never want to go back. I mean, this is for me. I remember when I took Joel to his first Pacers game and some friends of ours uh, helped us get some seats on the floor. And I remember saying to him, hey, buddy, when daddy buys, we will sit up there. All right. But I remember thinking to myself, you know what, I deserve this. This is where I ought to sit, you know, my appreciation for the game. And same thing happens for us when when Christianity becomes a religion, when it becomes a system of do's and don'ts. I mean, you can see how our lists of rights and wrongs can lead to this superior attitude that I'm better than you. I've got this all figured out and you don't. And Paul warns against this because he knows that it leads to pride. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he criticizes some of the Jews who think they're special uh, because they're Jewish. That heaven is for them and it's for no one else because they're Jewish. And Paul says, no, it doesn't work like that anymore. Everything has changed. And that happens today too. I mean, think about the people that you have conversation with or come across that will say things like they'll think about their own tradition and say, well, I'm Catholic, you know, or I'm Baptist or I'm Presbyterian. And because I'm one of these, because I choose this as my label, then I guess I'm better than you. Or, or I read the King James Version. Because I read the King James Version, then, then I'm right and you're really wrong. Or it works in other ways too. And we'll do that with our family. So, well, my, my grandparents or my parents were Christians. You know, my mom was a Christian or I went to a Christian school. And, and so I guess that's all that matters. But again, it's not about the label. I mean, it's about whether you have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, the most important question for you when your life comes to an end one day is whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that matters. And so Paul makes a strong case against religion because he knows that religion is based on rules and Christianity is about a relationship. I mean, religion focuses on reaching out to God and what I can do for myself to make myself right before him. But Christianity, a relationship, is about God reaching. It's about Him making these changes in us. You know, religion is all about the external. Christianity is all about the internal. And so Paul knows that the law is powerless, that it defines sin, but it can't save us. The law proves that we're all guilty and what we deserve is death. And again, we're imprisoned by this law. And so we're left with this label that simply says that outside of Jesus Christ, every single one of us, we're condemned. I mean, without Jesus, without a relationship with him, the sentence we deserve for what we've done is we're guilty. We're condemned. Another word I want you to see uh, is the word sinful nature. 
Uh, Depending on the Bible you use, it might be translated as flesh. It's our sinful nature. It's our flesh that is to blame for the condition that we find ourselves in. It's our sinful nature that is continually leading us to violate God's law. And Paul describes what it feels like to be imprisoned by your own sinful nature. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, and, and I think it's important to remember, I mean, this is a good guy here. I mean, chosen by God. I mean, these are the very words of God as Paul copies them down for us. And look what he says even about his own life and his own frustration. Romans seven fifteen. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Try and say that five times real fast. I had to look at my words really closely as I said that. But can you see the frustration in his, in his words? I mean, he can't do what he wants to do. And he keeps failing in everything that he knows he's not supposed to do. And so he has these good intentions. But in spite of his own best efforts, he just can't seem to live this righteous life. He wants to. He wants to honor God in his living. But he can't do that in his own strength. I mean, doesn't that describe you? Or should it? You know, these feelings of frustration that I'm trying to do the right things. I'm trying to avoid or stay away from the wrong things. And if you've ever been in a period where you've been trying to find victory over sin in your life, you know how frustrating it can be because you might find victory for a while, but then you fail again. And so we wear this label that says frustrated. Uh, I do it. Maybe you do it too. As Christians, we wear this label all the time that says frustrated. I mean, we want victory over sin, but, but how many times have you ever, ever caught yourself saying, I, I failed again, you know? I mean, why do I talk to my wife that way? Or why is it that I get so upset, you know, with my children? I, I don't want to act that way. Or if you're a guy and you're trying to find victory over lust and, and maybe you find victory for like 15 minutes or something, you know, and then, then you fail again. Or if you've been dating, you know, someone and you're like, okay, we're just going to watch a movie tonight. That's all we're going to do. We're just going to watch the movie. Yeah, right. I mean, you know what it means to be frustrated. You know what it means to fail over and over again. We all have these good intentions. You're trying so hard to live up to God's standards, and we know the rules. But again, it's that sinful nature that keeps working on us. It's that flesh that's still in us that keeps overwhelming us, and it leads to frustration. But thankfully, thankfully, Paul sympathizes with us. And in Romans seven twenty four, look at these first words. He says, hey, what a wretched man I am. I'm an idiot. You know how many times I have failed over and over again? I do the things that I don't want to do, and I can't stop doing what I know that I'm supposed to not do. And then he asks this question, who will rescue me from this body of death? I mean, can you reason with him? Have you ever been at that point of desperation in your life, maybe driving around in your car before, no noise, and all you've got are your mind and your memories and the number of times you've messed up and those feelings of frustration And you feel condemned. And Paul asks, who will rescue me? And in Romans 7.25, we find the answer when he says, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. And so what does Jesus do for us? Verse 1 says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And my friends, that is the best news that you will ever see. That is the best news that you will ever hear in your life, that there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And verse 2 goes on to talk about how we are free, that we were condemned, we were guilty. And Romans 1 through 7 has a lot of that. All right, you'll leave feeling guilty, but it's the truth. We were imprisoned. We were condemned 
but now we've been set free. Look at Romans 8 verse 1 again in the NIV. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Uh, In the NIV, it says, therefore, meaning everything up to what I've just said, keep that in mind. And now let's look at the good news. Let's look at this truth here. There is no condemnation. Why? How? It's in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus. And if you've got your own Bible, you might want to just underline that right now. Through Christ Jesus. If you leave with anything today, just something, leave with those three words. Through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus, we are no longer condemned. We're freed. When Jesus Christ becomes the Lord and Savior of your life, when you put your trust in Him, you are no longer condemned. But forever and for always, your label is, it's freed. That's what He's done for us. Victory is found in Jesus. That's the phrase that separates Christianity from all other religions. I mean, Buddhism is based on performance. Uh, Hinduism is based on what you can accomplish for yourself. Islam is, can I keep this strict code in order to find my way to earn something about earning my way to paradise? And it's not just in any, uh, or just in major religions either, you know, that we teach this concept or this concept of earning it is taught. I, I saw an example of this in a short selection. There was this article about Lakota warriors, these Native American Lakota warriors. And one of their practices in the past was to fasten an eagle claw to their chest. And then that eagle claw was fastened to the top of a pole. And then they had to fight their way to free themselves from the pole. And in the process, their chest would be torn open because of this eagle claw. And then from there, they would go into these sweat lodges and they would stay in there until the heat became so great that it was nearly unbearable. Now, why would they do that? Because they knew they were guilty. They did this as a way of demonstrating that they were condemned. And so they put themselves through this torture to pay penance, to make themselves right before the other men, before the other people in the tribe. Now, I understand that we might not go to these extremes, but we'll do other things too. We have our own ways of making ourselves right before God. And in the process, we put on and we carry all of these burdens, this guilt that we were never intended to carry, but God wants to set us free. He wants to set us free from these burdens. The good news is that Jesus Christ, he has freed us, but we get caught trying to deal with the condemnation part all the time of going back and seeing if we can fix it ourselves again. But the good news is that Jesus has freed us, that you and I have been freed through Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, again, you no longer wear that label of condemned. You wear the label that says freed. This is you. This is the good news. I think we should applaud for this. We applaud a lot here at Genesis, and so we applaud for this one. And even a whistle. But it's what verse 2 says again, Romans 8, 2, because through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, you and I, we can find our way back to God. You know, remember the law can't save you. Even on your best day, you are going to still break God's law, and God knew this. He knew that we weren't capable of achieving on our own, and that's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus Christ as our sin offering. Jesus came to serve the sentence for us. Now, we sometimes refer to Jesus in this uh, context as a sin offering, and the real fancy word in theology is the word propitiation. It's this idea that Jesus is the atonement for our sins. Jesus served the sentence for us. He paid the price for our sin. It's like God looked at the defendant's chair, and he saw you and me and what we had done, But he couldn't just let us walk. I mean, he couldn't just chalk it up and say, oh, I know you've tried. Or, man, I've just set the bar too high for everyone here. The standards are way too high. So you just go. You just go live your life and and I'll set you free. No, someone had to serve the sentence for us. 
I remember getting pulled over one morning and to my police officer friends in the room, it was in another state and it was many years ago. Uh, But I was going 15 mile per hour over the speed limit and I didn't realize it. I really didn't. I've never had a ticket before, okay? And I'm thankful for that. But in this particular case, um, I watched the police officer drive right on by and I knew that I was caught in that moment. And isn't it amazing how fast they can turn around in your rearview mirror? Have you ever noticed that before? And before I knew it, he was back on me. And so he's up to the car and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've never had a ticket before. Maybe he'll let me off. And so he asked me what I was up to and where I was going. I gave him my license. And a few minutes later, he came back to the car and uh, hoping that he would give me a break. He did. You know, he let me go. Have you ever been thankful for a warning before? Yeah, we've had some warnings. We're thankful to all of our police officers for the warning. I mean, it's the doctrine of grace played out right in front of you. Um, But in that case, and if we want to be clear about it, the police officer wasn't being gracious. I mean, if you want to be right about it, I mean, he was unjust. It's not fair that I was speeding. It's not fair that I was going 15 mile per hour over the speed limit. But in this case, he let me off. Now, for everyone else, and in defense of the law, that's not fair. It's not being gracious. It's really unjust. Now, again, I'm not complaining, and so do all the police officer friends in the room. We we love you. We appreciate you. But God can't do that. He can't sit back and look at the violations of the law and just say, okay, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you go free. Because God is perfectly just. Someone has to pay the ticket. Someone has to pay the price. Someone has to serve the sentence. Someone who didn't speed. Someone who is perfect. And that person for us is Jesus Christ. And so God put all of our sins on him. He put all of my sins on him and he paid the penalty. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he paid the price for sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says this, The law of Moses was unable to save us. Why? Because of the weakness of our sinful nature. I mean, we can't do it. We can't achieve it, okay? We can't rise to those standards on our own. So what did God do? God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Friends, you and I are free. You know, if you're in Christ Jesus, if you know Jesus Christ is your savior, you are free. We are no longer condemned. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, you know this label freed and what it means. And it's, it's really challenging to try and explain it. And it's really difficult to understand. It's one of those truths found in scriptures that, that you, can't really, you can't really describe for someone with words. It's best understood when you experience it. And if you've never experienced it before, you're not going to ever fully get it. There's something about being freed and experiencing that freedom that answers all of the questions for you and me. The band's going to come up on stage, and before we we move on, I want to share this story with you. Philip Yancey wrote a great uh, story to illustrate the truth of this. It's a true story that he copied down, and it happened a few years ago on the lower side of East Manhattan. And uh, there was a homeless man who was living near the uh, Fulton Fish Market. And like most every morning, he woke up early one morning to discover that the men were already slinging the fish from the truck, ready to get them to go for the day. And like most days, the homeless man went over uh, to the dumpster and went looking for food, went looking for something to eat. And uh, out of the corner of his eye, this one particular morning, he, he discovered a lottery ticket. 
and he crawled over to where it was sitting on the top of a piece of rotten lettuce and he picked it up and he put it in his pocket and the story goes that later on that day he came across the newspaper and when he was flipping through it and reached the lottery number section he remembered this lotto ticket in his pocket and he pulled it out and sure enough one two three four five all seven numbers perfectly matched i mean it sounds too good to be true right But it's true. It's a true story. And so while this man wakes up uh, to a dumpster of garbage on this one particular morning, he's going to end his day in front of bright lights and a bright camera. And and Yancey writes, he's a homeless man uh, who's become a millionaire. He's lived on the streets. He's eaten garbage. And now he's going to be paid $243,000 a year for the next 20 years. And, And in that moment, a reporter stuck a microphone in his face and said, hey, what does it feel like? And this man recalls as... He wonders to himself, I don't know if anyone has asked me that question in so many years. I mean, he's lived on the streets. He's been eating garbage. Here's a man who knows what it means to be hungry. And in this moment, he realizes he will never, ever be hungry again. I mean, that's the point that Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 8. That's what we experience in Jesus, that while once we were hungry, when you invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you'll never be hungry again. And notice something really important about this story. I mean, what does this beggar do to receive the millions? Nothing. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. And in the process, they didn't ask him about his years in middle school or high school or college. They didn't look at his record. It wasn't based on performance. All he had to do was cash in the prize. It was there before him and he had received it. You and I are not free because we're good enough. We're not free because we can earn it. We can't find our way back to God based on our own performance. You and I are freed because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has changed everything. Do you know him? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news. Um, Well, not good news, but great news. That through Jesus Christ, we have been set free.